Imagine bold, naturally-aged Tillamook cheddar slices melting over a burger, eating thick-cut cheddar shreds straight from the bag. Ah, it's nice to dream about cheese for a bit. Tillamook cheddar, extraordinary dairy. Save big money on everything for your spring projects at Menards. We have all of your garden and landscaping essentials. Master Garden Premium Garden Soil contains a slow-release fertilizer that feeds gardens for up to nine months. It produces better results and is ready to use for all your gardening needs. Save big on Menards' great selection of garden and landscaping products. Compare brands in-store or online at Menards.com. Save big money at Hello there, it's Jamila Jamel. Take a deep breath. Let your breath out slowly to the count of six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Do you feel better? Well, on my podcast, I Weigh, this month we'll be exploring ways to tackle mental health and feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and many more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. The year is 1994, and pop quiz hotshot, would you jump on a speeding bus with a bomb on it for a tiny pension and a cheap gold watch? What would you do? What would you do? The movie? Speed. everyone and welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we are endeavoring to find the 100 best films of all time. And when we do, we're going to send that list into outer space. Don't worry about how. We're on it. I'm friends with a guy named Jeff Bezos, and I think he's figured it out. Um, Amy, we are in the middle of our summer movie blockbuster series. We have done three films that Steven Spielberg has been involved with. Uh, you know, whether he has been a producer or a director or a consultant. And this is the first film in the series where we're getting away from Mr. Spielberg. And we're going to a little bit more of an adult summer blockbuster. I'm excited about this. Uh, yeah, I guess to get away from Spielberg, you have to go 50 miles an hour minimum. You got to race. <laughs> I mean, what is the maximum velocity of a velociraptor? I mean, I think a lot faster than a speeding bus. Uh, I think a Velociraptor can move very quickly. We saw what they did to Nedry. Now, what's interesting about this film was we both really wanted to try to break format a little bit, go in a different direction than we had been going in our previous films. And we wanted to pick something a little bit more adult. And so the two films that really went head to head here that you decided on uh, were The Fugitive and Speed. And I have to say, out of all the films that we have placed head-to-head, that was the closest uh, vote that we've ever had. And Speed just kind of edged out The Fugitive just by a little bit. How do you feel about that personally, Amy? Oh, I thought it was interesting because, you know, we put up this poll in several places. Your Instagram, your Twitter, my Instagram, my Twitter. We put it on Discord, of course. We really want to make sure that people got to weigh in. And... It was crazy close. Sometimes it was a tie. Sometimes Speed narrowly took it. Sometimes The Fugitive took it on my on my Twitter. I now know that my Twitter, that's the Harrison Ford hive of this show. Um, <laughs> and what we found up, what we eventually wound up doing is just like adding together all of the votes for either side into a giant total. And when we did that, 
speed took it across all platforms. But uh, maybe that neck and neck chase is exactly what this kind of movie is all about. I like it. I like that this movie edged out The Fugitive, but I also feel like The Fugitive gets a little bit of short shrift because, first of all, how can you have a summer movie without angry Harrison Ford? We need a Harrison Ford yelling about his daughter or his wife or Chewbacca. We need we need Harrison Ford to be flustered. Uh, and we're not going to get that. Uh, or we're not going to get that right away. And I also think that maybe, you know, when we look back on the films that we remember as being great, The Fugitive falls into this weird category of being very, very good, but not as beloved as Speed. And I was just kind of curious about that because I think pound for pound, The Fugitive is a better movie. But when asked, most people would just say, oh, well, Speed, because it just there's something more catchy about it. There's something more fun about it, but they're not really thinking about both movies truly like what makes them great. Well, I'm not going to put you on the spot. But you do have the option of calling an audible for The Fugitive at any time, just like we did in our space episode where we did Alien. And I was like, well, I've got to do Aliens next. We just mm, have to. OK. All right. So the audible is on the table. We will see how this discussion goes to see what gets picked. And I will say that the conversation in the Discord has been absolutely amazing. The Discord has really been uh, blowing up. As uh, you know, or if you don't know, the Earwolf forums have officially closed. Uh, A lot of people now are having these conversations about the show and what they want to see on the show on our Facebook group and our new uh, Discord group, which you can visit at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. There's a whole area there. We do threads for all the films. There's a lot of conversation over this idea of what created this new turn of uh, franchises. And I wanted to kind of talk to you about that because we got into it. And I boldly brought up that I think 9-11 was part of that. Someone else brought up a podcast where they said, well, actually the death of the multiplex brought that up. And, you know, there was more uh, competition or less competition. So you had to make sure that everything that you pitched out needed to be hit and hit hard. It couldn't just be like a moderate hit. And uh, someone else brought up something really interesting too, which is like, why are we obsessed with sequels? They've been around since the beginning of movies, from The Thin Man to Abbott and Costello and the Marx Brothers. They're, we are living in a world of sequels. We just look at them differently now. So there's a lot of great debate going on about, you know, are we leaning too much into IP? Or are we pulling away? And I also feel like this conversation has been going on online. There's a big conversation in the last two weeks about would Marvel be as successful if Robert Downey Jr. wasn't Iron Man, if Robert Downey Jr. wasn't in that suit. And I would argue no, but because he was in that suit, you can put anyone in the next suit and that movie will be successful. That makes sense. Well, then maybe Speed is a valuable film to talk about because this is a movie that was meant to be a a kind of middling one off. Um, surprise people just like Back to the Future did when they saw the first test screenings. They're like, oh my God, this is good. And they moved up the release date again, like we saw with Back to the Future. And then they thought, hey, we can do a sequel just like Back to the Future did. They did Speed 2 Cruise Control and it was terrible. And then they never did another sequel again and it killed the sequel for this whole franchise. And actually the original screenwriter of Speed said, the thing is audiences prefer to discover movies by themselves and that sequels generally appear as something approaching a civic duty. Which is the, what I say about like, why people feel obligated to go see well, Avengers movies. This idea of like a duty to go catch up with the story. 
And, you know, I mean, Graham Yost can analyze this, I think, with some distance because he didn't write the sequel. In fact, he said, if I had, I would never call it cruise control because cruise control just implies that you're not even like in control or trying to drive the thing fast or or, or any of it. Like just the name alone lets you know that the sequel will fail. But well, I appreciate I think- this statement that audiences prefer to discover movies. And that's what he believes happened to Speed, that it was discovered and not forced upon one. I, all right, I would agree with a lot of what you're saying, but we have to acknowledge the reason why Speed 2 was not a hit was because you were missing the lead character, you know, from the film. I mean, like, you just can't make a sequel and be like, oh, Jason Patrick is, like, it's, it is a bonkers idea. And I will say Willem Dafoe, incredibly underrated, a, amazing villain in that film. And Sandra Bullock, always great. But... You can't, like the chemistry of that movie, what made that movie work, I think, really was, uh, or this movie, Speed, was the relationship between Keanu and Sandra Bullock. Like, and then to put her in a, it just, I don't know, it it felt to me like on all sides, this movie was destined to fail. And well, it was yeah. on a boat. A boat was, cannot go fast. And are you a Keandra shipper? You know, uh, like a, a shipper of Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock, because that is an intense corner of the Internet. I understand it is. I've seen Lake House. I've seen this and I don't mind them together. I think they have a great chemistry. I mean, I'm I'm in. I'm all in. I have nothing bad to say about them. I will say this. Uh, one other major issue with Speed 2, and we don't have to worry about Speed 2 because we're not going to be talking about it that much. Uh, if you want to hear a full uh, breakdown of Speed 2, we have a How Did This Get Made episode about Speed 2. Uh, but the issue that I have with it is that movie takes place on a boat. And like you said, but more importantly, there's nothing to break it up. When people think about speed, they go, oh, it's all on a bus. It's not. The first 30 and the last 30 are giant set pieces, not on a boat uh, that are incredibly exciting and well-directed and very tonally different. That movie just feels to me like let's just do speed, but not change locations. And I, I understand it's a boat, so there's different levels to it. But like, there's no change in pace. And this this movie really does uh, do that well. Like, they forgot every tenant. I mean, and, and look, you can make the same argument with Die Hard. Like, oh, how do you put a guy in a situation again? I like Die Hard too. I know a lot of people don't. Um, but I think where Die Hard gets really bad is like, all of a sudden, you know, people love Die Hard 3 because it breaks the formula I don't know. It's it's hard to do, I think, a sequel to a very high concept issue. Like, Hot Tub Time Machine is a lot of fun. Hot Tub Time Machine 2, it's like, okay. Like, I mean, it's only in the sense of, like, it's hard to go back in. Like, Beverly Hills Cop 2, like, you could go back to Beverly Hills and solve a different murder mystery because there's something big going on in that world. And I know people don't like it as much as the first one. But, like, this is, like, the concept is king. Not the, like, you know, the concept is cool. Like, ultimately, speed is cool because of the bus idea. Like, you can't just be like, and let's just keep on doing it with different vehicles. It's stupid. Well, then I hope that, the end point of this argument isn't that in a world where everything is looking to find in the next franchise, or that's what the studios want, that they're turning away from really good one-off concepts. Yeah. Because I, the really good one-off concept scares them if they can't make it into a franchise. I mean, it's like the Sixth Sense 2. Like, what happens? He sees another ghost? 
spoiler, <laughs> or like Bruce Willis haunts another kid. Like, I mean, like that's the thing. It's like we have to be okay with having one movie make a shitload of money and then just taking those stars and directors and giving them a chance to make something interesting and different uh, once again. Oh, um, you sound like me, Paul. Well, I mean, I believe in it. I do believe in that. And I also love Marvel movies and I also love uh, everything else. I just feel like, but I don't, I don't like bastardizing cool concepts uh, that don't have any life. Like Lethal Weapon, give me all of those. Those when those movies fail, it's in the execution of the story, not the relationship. In my opinion, Ghostbusters two, the same thing. It's in the execution of the story. That you could do Ghostbusters two. I mean, it's a little bit trickier because they had to kind of rip it all up out to make it work. Uh, but they lost track of what was interesting. It's not about ghosts. It's about human relationships. Anyway, I can have a whole, we do have a whole episode about that. You and I talking about uh, <laughs> Ghostbusters. So uh, that is on uh, an old episode of the canon. But Amy, I think uh, it's time for us to hit the pedal to the metal and go over 55 as we unspool it. The year is 1994. For the first time, the public is introduced to the George Foreman Grill, the Wonder Bra, Beanie Babies, Amazon, PlayStation, and the TV show Friends. McDonald's is sued for too hot coffee. Nancy Kerrigan places second in the Olympics despite getting her knee smashed by the competition. And due to a strike, no one wins the World Series. 95 million Americans watch the infamous Bronco Chase, following the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. Other celebrity deaths include Kurt Cobain, John Candy, Richard Nixon, and Jeffrey Dahmer. Popular movies include The Shawshank Redemption, which we did. Pulp Fiction did it. Forrest Gump did it. Hoop Dreams did it. The Lion King did not do it. And today's movie, Speed. Amy, I love 1994. Oh, I love it so, so much. This is a very pivotal year in my life. But it's not about me. It's about Speed. Who's in it? Who made it? What's it about? Give me the details. Speed. It is the directorial debut of Jan de Bont, um, a director who made his bones being Verhoeven's cinematographer back in the Netherlands before coming to Hollywood, where he made Cujo and Die Hard and The Hunt for Red October, Basic Instinct, Jewel of the Nile, on and on and on and on and on, before finally really taking charge and making Speed. Um, Speed was written by Graham Yost from a script that Graham pieced together from the action movies that he really liked while he was trying to write a script that would allow him to quit working on the sitcom Full House. He was like, I've got to get out of Full House. What can I do? Here are all these action movies I love, and I will use them to combine an ultimate action movie. Um, the script did get a boost, though, from Joss Whedon, who was then known as an uncredited script doctor, and Graham Yost credits him for writing most of the dialogue. Speed is about a SWAT cop named Jack, who's played by Keanu Reeves, um, who winds up having this personal beef with a ransomer who likes to use bombs to threaten people for moderate amounts of money. The ransomer is played by Dennis Hopper, and he has put a bomb on an L.A. City bus that'll go off if any of the passengers evacuate or if the bus goes less than 50 miles per hour. Civilian Sandra Bullock is the girl who must drive the bus, which I think is a nice parallel to her own life, as Sandra was just only then leaving the civilian world behind to become a major, 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 major movie star. Uh, this is a really simple setup and a really, really simple film. But I think, Paul, that maybe Speed is possibly totally deep. And I would like to talk that out with you today. But first, let's take a listen. This day has been real disappointing, I don't mind saying. Why, because you didn't get to kill everyone? There will come a time, boy, when you'll wish you never met Mister, I'm already there. You see, I'm in charge here. I drop this stick, huh? 
and they pick your friend up with a sponge. Are you ready to die, friend? Fuck you. Oh, in 200 years, we've come for my regret, but I have one life to give for my country to fuck you. Speed hit theaters on June 10th, 1994, which is actually just a couple weeks after another film we have also covered on the show that we covered back in January, Chunking Express. The number one song in the charts is still the same song as when Chunking Express was uh, taken can by storm. It is I Swear by All for One. And yet I was thinking, Paul, that, you know, the promise that this song makes about standing by people even through death, I think that applies to Keanu here. That scene where he's like clutching Sandra Bullock when she's been handcuffed to a speeding subway car. Yes, the speeding subway car thing also happens in this movie. And he stays with her in this moment by her side, even though they both expect to die in a fiery explosion. You know, Paul, that image of of Keanu holding Sandra, expecting her to die with her right then because she's handcuffed. They can't get her out of these handcuffs. This train is going to like run off the tracks because apparently in 1994, nothing in L.A. is finished. Our freeways aren't finished. Our subway isn't finished. Every sort of public transportation is in peril. He can't get her free. And he accepts it and he doesn't get off the train and he holds her and they both expect the worst. And I thought... What a beautiful scene. He doesn't pull her out in the nick of time. They just go for it. Isn't that's striking, right? Yeah, I'm not alone. That is a striking choice. Yeah, I definitely think there are things in this movie that subvert the genre while also playing so hard into it. Like, I mean, to a point where it's like a full-blown parody of machismo 90s cop films. I mean, it's at points, it's downright comical. And I don't know if that's the performances or the dialogue. I mean, but I do believe that that is the secret sauce that Joss Whedon adds to this movie. Moments like that, those moments of connection. And I also believe you have to land on Keanu and uh, and Sandra Bullock. I, I was really taken by this interview that Matt Damon did on uh, Mark Maron's show, where he talked about uh, Jack Nicholson, and Jack Nicholson said to him, you know, I wouldn't be this successful if I wasn't a great writer. And he talked about how Jack Nicholson, uh, and you can listen to it, it's a phenomenal piece, but he just, how he layered in all these little things in a simple scene that was on the schedule for The Departed, where he didn't cost any extra money, but gave Scorsese all these different options in which to make his character more interesting. And I do believe that Dennis Hopper and Keanu at this point and, and Sandra Bullock, like, I I believe in this team to upgrade this movie, especially since, you know, Graham Yost is like, I didn't really do much of the dialogue writing. And, you know, Jan DeBont, I think, is very uh, good visually. I, I think there's a lot of things at play that make this, that elevate this movie. And I think the performers are definitely one of them. I, I buy those moments between them. It feels real. It feels sweet. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs. 
containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. I feel like this character that Keanu Reeves is playing, he starts as the kind of like cocky, funny cop character that I think is a bit irritating. Mm-hmm. You know, like he arrives onto the scene, you know, the movie opens where um, Dennis Hopper has taken an elevator hostage with 13 people in it. There's a lot of weird numerology in this. There's like so many 13s, 13 passengers on this bus. And like the subway car that they're on at the end is also subway car 13. And like there's this theory that, you know, the bus itself being number 2525, when you add that up, it's like 50, 50 miles an hour. All of this creepy numerology going on. That, um, you know, they arrive to save these people. And the Keanu that you get, the first Keanu that you really hear in him is a guy who's like going over curves, like his cars are leaping into the air for no reason. And when he's told that these people in this elevator are going to crash and burn if if the um, ransomer doesn't get $3 million, and is there any way to stop him? He says this kind of harsh joke. Anything else that'll keep this elevator from falling? Uh, Basement. The city would like to avoid that event, Officer Travin. We can't just unload the passengers. I mean, that's the kind of like flippant action movie lingo where you're like, oh man, this guy doesn't play by the rules. He's harsh. And yet, as then when the film goes on, he becomes, I think, a really different character. Like he becomes a guy who I think has a lot more empathy towards the, the people on the bus. And he doesn't seem to act like he thinks life is a worthless joke. The way that he seems to at the beginning. I mean, this is a guy who, like, when his partner asks him at the beginning, like, what would you do if you saw a man being taken hostage and, like, another guy was pulling him towards the bus? Like, what would your answer be? And this is how he answers that question. All right, pop quiz. Airport, gunman with one hostage. He's using her for cover. He's almost to a plane. You're 100 feet away. Jack. Shoot the hostage. What? Take her out of the equation. Go for the good wound and he can't get to the plane with her. Clear shot. You're deeply nuts, you know that? Shoot the hostage. (laughs) And the thing is, I mean, this guy is not kidding. Because immediately after that, you know, his partner who asks him that question, uh, who's played by Jeff Daniels, gets taken hostage by Dennis Hopper. And he shoots the hostage. He does that. Thing. And I feel like the rest of the movie is Keanu realizing that he actually cares a little bit more about human life than he thinks he does. Well, I mean, you take that as not caring about human life. I take that as being this is a realist. Like he doesn't think about things in the sense of my emotions come first. And I think that's why everyone survives in this movie because he's looking at it so Spock-like. He's a logical human being. And I don't think that that means he's devoid of love. I don't think that he opens up his heart and he changes anything. He's always incredibly logical. Even when they're escaping the bus, you know, I don't think it's like kill the hostage. It's like shoot the hostage so I have a better chance of shooting the bad guy. It's not like kill the hostage and kill the bad guy. So him staying with Sandra Bullock isn't like crazy. Like, I don't think of him as a person that would ever leave someone to die, but it is uh, certainly 
a bolder move. Like, I think he can joke around about it, but I don't, I don't see him. I don't see that character arc is like, this guy doesn't give a shit about anybody. He clearly does. Like he, he, but the only difference here is he's a guy who's always going to put everything into extreme situation. And he just, he, I mean, that's the most extreme thing. That's love, love extreme, baby. I mean, you know, to, to like, we'll get out of this together or we won't. Well, cause she's a hostage and he has the opportunity to shoot her and he doesn't take it. Well, because she's got the bombs on her. Yeah, but if she falls down with the bombs, she's not going to explode because he's because Dennis Hopper's holding the trigger. But it was the same. It was. I mean, I don't think he was not. I I have issue with this. I I agree with what you're saying. Is like I don't think that he's like. Oh, I'm afraid to shoot her. I think it just didn't make the sense that made like it wasn't the same situation. You think like you think that that was more of a like emotional moment, and I'm curious. I'm not disagreeing with you. I convince well, me a little bit, a little bit. I mean, I okay. think if you open a movie with a hostage shooting situation, immediately have him play it out, and then close the movie with another hostage situation, and he acts a little differently. I think you are trying to say something. I think maybe they're saying it a little clumsy because I do agree that the movie isn't about his arc. I almost feel like he's just two different people. That in that kind of basement quippy line. Mm-hmm. You see the original version of the character, the kind of like tough guy character they wrote. And then later on, you see the more human version of the character that I think is like what drew Keanu Reeves to want to do the project when when Joss Whedon probably rewrote and softened the script a lot. And I don't know if they thread the whole needle in there, but I do think I think he's different on the bus than he is when he's in the elevator. Well, let me pitch I think this there's idea a to change. you. I, I don't think so at all because we meet him outside of that opening sequence, which let me just say one thing about this movie right at the top. Uh, terrible, terrible title design. Oh, the and, worst font ever. Doesn't it look like a dot matrix printer? My dad I had mean, those to like make people birthday banners. I was like, what is going on here? And I have to say, while catchy, the score is not great on this movie. It's, it's... It's trying to be something that it's not. I mean, it's like dun 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 dun. Like these are two things I just need to like comment on there that are objectively bad, but it's like an earworm. That music does get you going, but it's not. It's it is. You could tell this movie was done not with the belief it was going to be a huge hit because they would have gotten a better composer in there to to let's get some horns in here. Let's let's too synthy for me anyway, but. I will say this to the point of Keanu being a softy. He's a fucking softy. Goes to the place to get his his brand muffin and his coffee. He knows the bus driver like that. He doesn't even ride the bus. The bus driver comes. He's like, hey, man, what's going on? Like they <laughs> I mean, I don't believe that Keanu has a lifestyle that lets him hit that coffee shop at the same time every day because he seems to be part of the bomb squad living a pretty intense life. But he gets his brand muffin. He gets his coffee. He knows that bus driver so well. Everybody uh, in LA knows their bus driver. According oh, to this it, it's movie. not I mean, his. Sandra's bu- like best friends with her bus driver. But it's not even his bus driver. I would if if it would have been interesting to me if Keanu didn't drive a car, you know, and uh, he does. So he knows this bus driver just because they have small talk every. I mean, whatever. But they're they're pitching him, and he's it's the an catalyst. Idealistic view of Los Angeles. Imagine, okay. wouldn't it be nice if we knew our bus drivers here? Absolutely. And by the way, I love that actor, that bus driver who's played by uh, John. Uh, 
Capadice, I believe I pronounce his name, but I know him from like the Palio string cheese commercial from my youth. Uh, he was like the owner of the, uh, the cheese store. He's like, hey, that's not how you eat cheese, um, which was great. Uh, but he's also been in like Independence Day and a ton of uh, big movies, Ace Ventura and stuff. Great uh, character actor. And this movie's full of great character actors. But it just is like they're showing him to be a man about town, but then they're also showing him to be like, like, there's nothing hard-edged about him. Like, even in the beginning when he's getting the Medal of Honor, like, he he seems to be cocky more than cut off. Cut off, true. But he seems to be immature in the other police officer's eyes, I think. The way that, you know, the way that his partner, Jeff Daniels, plays him, Harry Temple, yeah, he plays him as a guy who still believes he's like a mortal. And I feel like part of what this, the characters are trying to tell him at the beginning, you know, Harry, like they go to this award ceremony. Harry gets really drunk. Harry gets really depressed. And Harry starts saying, you know, like, you need to be prepared for your own death, essentially. We are the two luckiest guys in the world. You know what? We got the bad guy, and we didn't lose any civilians. Yeah, That's we're right. good. No, you were lucky. No, we were lucky. You better understand it. We were dealing with a total psycho, you know? This guy could have blown us up at any time. And I got a bullet in me. Six inches off the mark, and they're giving the medal to my wife. Harry, come on, man. I mean, we won. We got him. Do you listen? Do you ever? Because I am not going to be around to back you up. So you better start thinking. Guts will get you so far, and then they'll get you killed. Luck runs out sooner or later. Right, Chief? That's right. And I think that that is really kind of what this movie is about. What really struck me on this watch is like, this is a movie about, you know, three types of containers, elevators, buses, subway cars, three, I would say, and this is me like smoking my metaphorical critical weed, three like metal coffins, basically like coffins that are headed in one direction. There's nobody behind the wheel. Who's the driver? The driver gets shot. The driver gets shot again. And it's like, what do you do when you are speeding in one direction? And it feels like a metaphor for heading towards your own death. And I think that's what's happening in here is like, if you face, if you have the opportunity to face your own death, which is what everybody is like pushing Keanu to even talk about or think about at the beginning, like the mantra of all of the LAPD is like, don't get dead. Don't get dead. He's like, why am I doing this? You're doing this for a tiny pension and a cheap gold watch, you know? And Here's this bus where he will probably die on this bus and he gets on the bus. He chooses to get on the bus and he chooses to like make the best of this situation. I think it's because there is so little movie maybe in this movie that it to me, it makes me want to like put my fingers in it and see like, what is there in this? Because I feel like there's something deeper in this movie than just like I'm a speeding bus. I think the pull of it, I think the pull of what makes Keanu like. I don't know, seem to have a weight here in this film is that there's, I, I feel like there's like crazy mechanics going on under the surface that make this movie deeper. If you really want to think about it. All right. I'm going to go in this path with you because I like where you're going. I don't agree with you, but I'm going to enjoy going down this path and say this, look, these are two men that we are introduced to whose whole life 
is devoted to diffusing bombs, right? And their their life is about uh, being put in these extreme situations. And then when they diffuse a bomb, the next bomb goes off. And what do we do in life? We just go from problem to problem and then we die, right? So he's constantly putting himself in this idea of like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always, I can't enjoy my life because I'm constantly making sure that someone else gets to live their life, right? So his, like, his metaphor is like, I am the problem solver of the world where Sandra Bullock is a lot looser and she's actually living a life and it allows her to, in many respects, fall into the role that she has of being the savior of the bus because she is the savior of the bus in many ways. Um, the driver of it, she's got to keep her foot on the ground. Um, and she's open to opportunities and she's not as uh, kind of closed off. So Keanu is... Uh, you know, I, I do think that if you want to look at the yin and yang of it all, like it's the Kirk Spock relationship of, you know, logic over emotion. And and maybe what what they do at the end is uh, maybe uh, Keanu becomes more bones, you know, this this kind of person who can see both sides. Yes, he's a doctor, but also he understands that people, you know need a, a different hand. Um, but I would argue that they don't set him up properly for that. I think that Jeff Daniels is incredibly cocky in the beginning as well. I think if anything, what we're really talking about here, and this is something that I was excited to t- share with you, is the Shaq-Kobe relationship. This is Shaq and Kobe. Jeff Daniels is Shaq and Keanu is Kobe. He's like, yeah, you're young and you got your whole thing and you think you're the hot shit, but guess what, man? Like, you're not like, you know, like, and I, and I feel like there is, they're both equally adept. It's like, not that Jeff Daniels is not good. Jeff Daniels is equally smart and good. And, you know, he gets caught in a situation that kills him. But, um, yeah. well, according and by to everybody way, in the movie, like Jeff Daniels is the only smart one. It's weird how in this movie, people meet Keanu and then they're immediately like, well, you're clearly the dumb one or you're not going to learn this. Or now that I, Jeff Daniels, the smart one is dead. You're really screwed. Like people tell Keanu he's dumb throughout this entire movie. But is never shown to make a wrong choice. No. Uh, so again, it's, it it's, it's faulty plotting. Yeah. It is bizarre that they keep calling him dumb. Like, why? I, I will also say that looking at Jeff Daniels in this movie, I'm like, this man has an amazing career. Like, just to give a little bit of Jeff Daniels, like, props, like, what he does and what he makes believable and his career and where he's gone, I'm just constantly impressed. I forgot that he was in this movie. Um, and the way that he carries himself as like a bomb squad guy, I'm all in for Jeff Daniels. There's something likable about him, but he can really, he's a great character actor who is also uh, many times a leading man. But uh, I just can't say enough about this guy. Uh, and when you look at his, like, I looked at his IMDb last night, I was like, God damn it. He's like been in so much great stuff um, and always so different, but also really likable. No, it's true. And he has that moment here that I think is really powerful where he's the one who's figured out like that Dennis Hopper is the bomber for reasons we're definitely going to get into. He goes to Dennis Hopper's house. He's like, I can't be there helping my partner. I'm going to help him in this way. He's doing the Gary Sinise role. Yeah. He shows up at this house. He's like touring his, you know, it's kind of Dennis Hopper's his house. Like from what we can gather about Dennis Hopper from the production design does not add up to me at all. Like he lives in a house with plastic on the couches. You're like, okay, mm-hmm. you really don't live for today, Dennis Hopper. He's got really like missiles on the walls and gears and wheels, which feel a bit heavy handed about showing his mentality. But then when you cut to his lair, he's like watching football and he has a bunch of mannequins with black latex in the background, which don't seem to fit to his house at all. I can't get like a coherent 
mentality well, I mean, of Dennis his, Hopper's decorating style. But like that place that he's in in the movie where he actually is looks like he just took over like an abandoned warehouse. Like it looks to me yeah. like he is in the situation of like uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, like in a book depository, like he's picked this place, but the, those mannequin heads are weird. Cause you're like, Oh, what's going on here? And then you realize, Oh, nothing. Like that's a set designer's choice for yeah. a room that doesn't exist in a building. Fine. I mean, it's interesting looking, but it, I mean, at that point too, downtown LA was not, as popping as it is now. So I, I imagine there's a bunch of abandoned dress factories. I mean, I'm, I guess that's what they're assuming, but he's also somehow put a bunch of TVs in there. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm pointing it out because, yeah, it seems like a bold production design choice that I don't quite understand how any of it adds together. I don't believe yeah. that he has plastic on his couch. I really don't. I don't Dennis even believe Harper, that that's his house. Really? But I don't, I don't know. I feel like the gears are saying it's clearly his house. I mean, I also don't understand. Well, I guess right, he I think he basically built a trap like, OK, this will delay them in getting to me. Like everything is like a, a puzzle for him. So it's like I if I'm going to do this, I've been thinking about this for a long time. Remember, he is, uh, you know, he's smart. They keep on saying he's smart. So I, I believe that. He's a character that might have even bought that house or set up residence there just to trap people. But um, all he wants to make is $3.7 million. Like that's I mean, a fair and, amount of his retirement budget is buying and, up a house and then blowing it up. I mean, I, I am curious about that. And I also am curious about the, he's a former Atlanta uh, bomb squad negotiator who now lives in LA. Like why wasn't he taking this out on the Atlanta police? Because that's what happens when, when one of the other detectives, she brings in the, the documentation. She's like, I found him. He's an Atlanta bomb squad person, retired, blew off his hand. Why aren't you taking this out on the Atlanta Police Department? I know. I mean, there's a, a lot of stuff in here that I think doesn't quite fit together, really. But what I was thinking, though, is like that moment when Jeff Daniels shows up at his house with the bizarrely plastic wrapped furniture. He realizes there's a bomb implanted in the wall. I love this close up that we get of Jeff Daniels' face because he gets this look that says, oh, I knew this was going to happen. I told him I was going to die. I knew my luck was going to run out. I've been expecting this. Right. And then he explodes. But I like that this movie gives you a moment of reflection with him where he's like, oh, man, I hate that I'm right, but I did. And what I think is interesting is how much this his death affects Keanu Reeves. Like he dies and Keanu Reeves has a complete breakdown. I mean, a breakdown that I think is really unusual for the type of like lead character hero in this. I mean, listen to him. He's like freaking out on Sandra Bullock right now as they're still on the bus. We're going to die. He's like, he's given up on life at that moment. He's like, we're going to die. We're just here. When do you hear somebody say like, that's it. We're going to die in the movie when it's supposed to be the hero. Amy, you are so right. I mean, when he had that freak out for about 45 seconds, I was like, oh my God, this movie has taken a real turn. And then we got right back into the game. I was like, can't believe it. 
Less than a minute, he's back in. I mean, this is like, that's like so action movie bullshit. It's like his best friend dies. And he's like, oh, God damn it. God damn it. And then he's like, okay, let's go back. You know, it's like, it's no, but it's, it's not same. like, God damn it. God damn it. I'm going to go get the guy. He's like, God damn it. God damn it. We are doomed. I mean, the we are doomed. Yes, it's short, but that is rare. It is yeah. rare. I think, I think that moment really fits in with the man who gets off the bus and gets back on. They think they have they think he abandons them. He keeps choosing over and over over again to get on a thing that could be his certain death. And I think that is important. I, all right. I, I mean, here's, you know, Die Hard comes out in 1988. All right. Die Hard 2 comes out in 1990. This movie comes out in 1994. This movie is so of the world of Die Hard. Like Bruce Willis has already done this and, and, and better. Like Bruce Willis's reaction to, uh, you know, Ellis's death, who he didn't even know he met. And he was like, this guy's a fucking asshole. Like is even is that same level of emotion and you see it multiple times like this is a this is a at this point an overused move i mean even under you could make a point that even under siege does it 92 like you know so this idea of like the action hero being like affected is a big like a big shift and i think there's a difference though between affected and i quit like bruce willis doesn't quit i mean and keanu is a very different kind of actor than a Bruce Willis. You know, like, I mean, that's like, that's kind of why he's even cast in this. Like, Jan Debont says that he specifically cast him because he thought he was, quote, vulnerable on the screen. And he goes on to say that, like, and so it, is Bruce Willis when he goes runs through the glass on the ground. I mean, don't think about the now Bruce Willis. Think about the the David Addison moonlighting Bruce Willis who runs through glass, picking out glass, having that conversation with Reginald Vell Johnson about killing a kid. Like, I'm not talking about Bruce Willis in Die Hard Four, even Die Hard Two, like Die Hard One. Like, this is ripping Die Hard One. This is you know they go like McTiernan made this, DeBont will make this, and we will see what happens. I, I just. I, I believe that he wants to, I, there are moments. The only reason why he is staying, why he pushes forward and there's these dark moments is because his wife is there and they find out that his kids, where his kids are. So he's like freaked. But like, I don't want to have that conversation right now about Bruce Willis in that movie, but I'll just say like, I think that you might be overloading. This is, this is the playbook. This is the playbook of action movies at this point. I think. No, I, I think it is and it isn't. I mean, I think you're right that these are on parallel tracks. And I think having stuff like Bruce Willis get his feet cut up by glass in Die Hard is really special. I do think, though, there's something more reflective about this. I don't think Keanu Reeves would take this movie if he didn't see something more reflective in this whole setup. I think this is a really allegorical, simple setup that to me is different than Die Hard. Die Hard, I think at the end of the day, Bruce Willis is determined to get the job done. And I think there is like doubt and hesitancy in, in Keanu. I think this is a movie about trying and hoping it works out, about not having a plan and seeing what the best thing is that you can do. I mean, the movie that Keanu Reeves makes right before this is Siddhartha. Like his his Buddha movie comes out like the same summer. I don't think he's choosing this plot because he does because he thinks he's going to be Bruce Willis. Uh, I don't know, Amy. I, I mean, you, we're, we're in a world where Air Force One is out and that's Harrison Ford, you know, on a plane, uh, you know, unlikely hero. You know, the only thing different about this movie, like, you know, you have Nicolas Cage in The Rock, unlikely hero. You know, you have uh, Cliffhanger, even though it's Stallone, he's not supposed to be doing what he's doing. You know, all these movies that are unlikely heroes and i guess the difference in this movie is he is a likely hero he is the bomb squad guy he isn't just a person on the bus and so that is the 
interesting thing, like that he actually has the tools to figure it out uh, versus, I mean, I guess it's more in the vein of like Con Air, you know, uh, you know, where it's sort of like Con Air, it's like, okay, this is a bad guy who's doing good stuff. Like this is a good guy figuring out how to use all the things he knows to put it together. Um, But I do believe that there's no way that he looks at this and goes, this is different than those movies that just listed off. They're, they're, they, clearly, this is, a, this is a move, and I know that he's coming off of that, and I think Keanu picks amazing movies, and I think that even with John Wick, he finds an emotional resonance that makes you connect to him, and I think that there's something in there. Uh, but this movie is not as good as even other Keanu Reeves movies in which he does the same thing. No, I don't think so. I mean, like when Keanu reads the script for the first time, he doesn't like it because it is more like Die Hard. Like he said, when he read the script the first time, he thought it was Die Hard mixed with the screwball comedy. Yeah. And he really doesn't want to be that character. I think he he, like one of the things he really asked them to do when they redrafted is to get rid of all of the one liners and like the cocky, funny stuff. I think he's looking for something more pure in the middle of this film. And like, I, I am not saying that I think speed is an incredibly brilliant film that's like better than all of these other movies. But I just do think there is something going on underneath the hood of this movie that to me makes it interesting. You know, the whole idea of like comparing Keanu, Keanu's life to Dennis Hopper. I mean, like they are both people who are cops who work in bomb squads. And is there a way where if Keanu doesn't learn to like value life a little more than he seems to at the very beginning of this film, where he could be on track to become somebody like a Dennis Hopper. I mean, He's on track to be a guy who gets a cheap gold watch. And that's exactly what Dennis Hopper gets at the end of his career for living his whole life this way. Dennis Hopper clearly took risks that caused him to lose his hand and it made him jaded. Keanu is the same type of person who takes risks. You know, and I think that there is something here where it's saying, like, if you do not value people as people, then you will be a guy who like doesn't value life at all. And like, where is the extension of that? Like if you get numb to death, especially if a person who's like always living around death, then who are you going to be? And this movie, I think, looks at that. Maybe it doesn't look at it like, like with a big speech, like, thank you. I have now learned to look at life directly because of your model, Dennis Hopper. But the parallels are just absolutely there. I mean, even in that last speech that Dennis Hopper gives him about like the purpose of bombs. You still don't get it, do you, Jack? Huh? The beauty of it. A bomb is made to explode. That's its meaning, its purpose. Your life is empty because you spend it trying to stop the bomb from becoming. And for who? For what? Do you know what a bomb is, Jack, that doesn't explode? It is a cheap gold watch, buddy. You're crazy. You're fucking crazy. Oh, no. Poor people are crazy, Jack. I'm eccentric. Get the money. Let's go. Come on! I mean, to me, what that's basically saying is, you know, if you are a man who likes to live surrounded by danger, you know, or like in... in high-octane situations, the kind of man like Sandra Bullock doesn't trust because it's dangerous to hook up with people in these kind of situations then you are triggered to explode. I mean, it feels interesting to me that this movie is coming out like around the time of movies like Falling Down that are looking at not just heroes, but like villains who feel that they can justify that they've been mistreated by society. 
And like what happens when you don't feel like your heroism is vindicated, which is clearly what Hopper is feeling. And it, it kind of makes me sad. I mean, I'll just say like part of me thinks like maybe they should have just paid Hopper $3.7 million because that's like a fairly small exact amount of money. He's like raised it $0.7 million since the elevator like um, attack didn't go right. And yeah. he's not asking for like a gazillion dollars. They blow up a $100 million plane just to not give a man who lost his hand and didn't get, he thinks, his full retirement benefits $3.7 million. I mean, per person, that's not even that much money just to be like, here you go. Well, in that time, you think? Yeah, even at that time, I don't think it's that much money. I mean, I'm not, I don't know. I can't do math off the top of my head and I have no idea what the number, I'm guessing it's like, what, $5 million? I mean, they blew up a $100 million plane just to be like, I mean, that was screw also, the working man. I mean, it also felt like when they blew up that plane at the end, it's like, there was no real coordination. Like that, that you know, that bus is <laughs> circling LAX. Like they're still running planes on the runway. Like they're not like, there was no, I mean, not that you can move a plane very quickly, but like, it just seems like that final plan might've been like, Hey, can we just like clear out some area here? Can we like, you know, like really, they really make it worth its while. I mean, I also think this movie is stupid. Like, and I say that with much love as a person who loves stupid movies. Um, like, I mean, everything about this movie is, is just built to have things blow up and explode. Like again, going back to my, my favorite bus driver who dies in the very beginning of the movie, um, you know, they blow up this bus, like the, all the orchestration for that to work is so wild. It's like, okay, so (sighs) Dennis Hopper knows that he goes and gets coffee and he's friendly with the bus driver. Okay. So if he knows that, he knows the bus driver goes in and he's going to get in the bus, he's going to plant a bomb in the bus. And then he's going to hope that Keanu sees that bus and he's going to blow up that bus. And then Keanu's going to chase after the bus. But then like, it's so like, it, it it's so complicated in its planning uh, that I don't know. It, it like, oh well, no, and it makes you wonder. Like he, like Dennis Hopper says, it took him two years to plan the elevator attack, but he can plan this whole bus thing, the double bus explosion, in like what twenty four hours. It's hard to tell how much time goes by, but like, was he just slacking when it took him that long to do the elevator? Yeah, I mean, well, I guess I mean he did have a. I, the elevator operation seems a lot simpler. Like, uh, well, who knows? I mean, maybe it was a lot of security to get in the building. Um, but that being said, I think that Dennis Hopper and I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to logic these movies because logicing these movies takes all the fun away from it. And I think that this movie is fun and Dennis Hopper is great in this movie. Like, I always feel like you get these moments in careers where people are like peak the version that you want of them. And Dennis Hopper to me is a guy who I feel like lives in his Dennis Hopper peak for a long time. Like he is always giving a great performance. And I think because his performance and his energy, like what he brings to this movie, it makes it a villain, a good villain it makes a movie like this. And he definitely uh, is in his bag in this movie and he has very limited screen time and he's, and he's great. I buy everything about it. I mean, I feel like there's some stuff that never adds up completely. Like, I don't, I really can't get a grip on his psychology as the film presents it. Like, no, which is, you know, when Keanu first is looking at the elevator shaft, he's like, oh, this is just rigged to blow up no matter what, you know, like this will blow up. And then Dennis Hopper blows it up three minutes earlier than he's even supposed to. And when you have that kind of action in the film, you're thinking like, 
okay, so is he going after somebody in this car and specific, like he really wants somebody in the elevator to die? Is this personal? But it kind of seems like maybe not. Or if it isn't that, we're never sure what's happening. When Kenner tries to tell Sandra, like, no, he really just wants the money. She's like, I don't believe that. But nothing about that ever gets disproven. Like if he doesn't just want the money, we don't really know. But I'm going to play that scene anyway, because I like that scene, because I think it's sort of talking about the existentialism of being an action hero. So, why is all this happening? I mean, what do we do, bomb the guy's country or something? No, it's just a guy who wants money. I don't buy that. It's not a very good way to make money. So, um, what is this guy's deal? A while back, he held some people for ransom. Went sour, and now he's a little pissed at me. What does that have to do with us? Nothing. It's a game. If he gets the money, he wins. If the bus blows up, he wins. What if you win? Then tomorrow we'll play another one. But I'm not available to drive tomorrow. I mean, think about that. He makes, he makes at the end of this uh, scene with Sandra Bullock, sound like he is, I don't know, Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner. You know, that this is just what we do. We do this over and over again. It feels almost like being trapped in a loop. You keep talking about that Tom Cruise movie lately. Yeah. Like Live, Die, Repeat or Edge of Tomorrow, however you want to know it. But the idea that repeating it and repeating it and repeating it and repeating it, maybe it is just because I'm thinking about him doing Siddhartha right before this, but it feels like, you know, sitting under a tree, thinking about your past lives and how each one is going to end with like the coyote exploding you in a huge hail of TNT. It's depressing. I find it like beautiful and depressing all at once. I mean, even at the beginning, he's talking about his first elevator job. Keanu is in terms of like winning. And this movie just keeps saying like, there is no way of winning. Even if you win today, this will just keep happening. That's dark, right? I think that is dark. And I think that is unusual. If we want to like break into like the the larger idea, I think it's a fun idea to unpack. Like what what do you do as a cop? Like, why are you doing this? What like, and and I think it's an interesting thing to add to the conversation. I think it's a Joss Whedon thing that he's adding to the conversation. Like, yes, you are a superhero. Like, as a bomb squad guy, the first time we see them, they're flying. They literally are yeah. flying. The car literally is in flying. the air, and um, and it's a great For opening no shot. Reason. No reason. No why reason. Why do they have to I be mean, that I mean, it's such a San Francisco shot, not in San Francisco, and they're flying. You know, uh, and I think that there's an idea like, well, why are you a superhero? Like, what? Like, what do you want to do? Like, what? What? Where do you get fulfillment or whatever? You know, whatever the case may be. Um, and I think that that's what they add. And I think the studio probably was like, okay, here's Jan DeBont. He made. He was a DP on Die Hard. You know, let's make another Die Hard. This time we'll be on a bus instead of a building. And, you know, and I think that this collaboration with Graham Yost and and Joss Whedon goes, all right, how do we break it from the mold of being a Die Hard? How do we elevate it a little bit? And I think that, that these are the, the things that you're responding to seem to be, you know, the plan isn't just for money. The plan is for like being feeling betrayed like Dennis Hopper lived the life that Keanu had and got nothing for it but this gold watch and you know so it's it is a little bit more personal it's not like uh he's not coming after Keanu I mean he is because Keanu messed up his money thing but um like I don't get the sense that Dennis Hopper wants to hurt anybody he just wants 
it to be fair, you know, and there's a, there's something not fair. Like he was eaten up and spit and spit out by this machine. The same way that Jeff Daniels knows in that moment, like he will be too. Like everyone is. Keanu doesn't realize that yet, maybe because it's youth. So these things I think make the movie more interesting, but I think every other movie does it better. <laughs> like ultimately. Really? Well, do. do you think, do you think this is a pro cop movie? Well, it's hard. I was thinking about this. I was like, wow, we used to have so many movies where cops were heroes. And it's sort of like right now, like it's I think it's a tougher thing to sell. You know, Bruce Willis is obviously a cop in Die Hard. You know, uh, Steven Seagal, while he's a chef, he's also part of like, you know, uh, you know, some sort of elite force or been a part of elite force. There's always like some sort of badge in play, you know, so much so that like that great opening sequence where he's chasing after the bus and just showing his badge like, you know, Axel Foley's a cop. Uh I think all these movies are pro police. I grew up this idea like I wanted to play cops and robbers. I wanted to be like that. That was what action movies were. You'd be a cop because a cop can do anything. Right. Once you're a cop, you can uh, you can commandeer buses. You could you know that you're you're above the law, which is you exactly can grab the a guy's issue. Jaguar and be like, your Jaguar is my Jaguar. Right. Which is exactly what we're rebelling against now. So I, I yeah. under uh, you know, or what what a lot of issues have stemmed from, like you're not above the law, but. They are viewed as heroes. They're basically just supermen running around. So, yes, it is pro-cop because, the you know, they make jokes. Like, Alan Ruck in this movie makes a joke about it. He's like, well, they're not going to let us die. They, you know, they get paid. You know, that's what we pay taxes for. Like, by the way, Alan Ruck, an interesting choice on a bus full of people that are not recognizable. He is incredibly recognizable, obviously, mm-hmm. from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Um, you know, to be on that bus is interesting. I think his character probably has the biggest arc. But he kind of comments on the the cop nature of it all. You know, and and I think that Keanu shows off multiple times like, hey, I am a cop. But right now we're just two dudes, two cool dudes. You know, it's like, um, but yeah, like he's a cop. But it is it is interesting that he's not in his cop uniform when this happens. Like he's not in his uniform when this whole event on the bus is happening. And yeah, I think that scene is interesting where he's telling that guy like on the bus um, who thinks that he's there to arrest him for crimes we never quite know. Um, you know, whatever you did, I'm sorry. It's cool. It's over. We're just two guys. I'm not a cop right now. Like yeah. the, the taking away of his cop status is interesting. And I don't think this movie actually, I feel like this movie is really messy in whatever point maybe it is trying to make with this. I find it yeah. fascinating that it's like attempting, but I was really struck by how, like, as he's climbing onto the bus, the only thing he keeps yelling over and over and over again is LAPD, LAPD, as if, like, announcing what he does for a living, like, is just his sole purpose in life, just to keep repeating that phrase, keep repeating it. And then immediately when he's on the bus, he's, like, eager to say, I'm not a cop and take that away and, like, kind of be, I don't know, passive isn't exactly the right word, but he is a guy who, like, puts his gun down in that moment. Right. I mean... What I think is interesting about his version of heroism in this movie is, yeah, he's willing to put his life on the line, which is what we're always told cops are doing. Um, I don't know. Um, He's willing to sacrifice his identity as a cop. But then what he does, I think, better than that is, like, he shows a lot of empathy to try to keep the team together. Like, he, you know, turns to Sandra and he's like, how are you? Like, and he genuinely seems to care when he asks her that. Like, are you doing okay? And I think there's something in that style of heroic leadership that he adds to it that it makes this, to me, more complicated than just like cops are great, the movie, which I'm really sick of. Yeah, I think he has like more humanity than the, than a normal hero does, even though it's Keanu. He's not talking that much and he's not like saying very much. I think there's something in the way he just exists on screen. Like he just doesn't 
I don't know. He seems to make this character deeper in his silence. You don't like I, this movie. No. No. Okay. All right. Yeah. yeah. I just want you to say that. Oh, yeah. No, no. I have no problem saying it. I don't like this movie. I, I mean, I, I like it. It's fine. It's just not... I think this is an outlier in the fact that, yes, it was a blockbuster, but it's something that has not aged well. Does it work uh, on you, no. even though you don't like it? It doesn't even work. You're not even nope. like, I'm propelled into this story. Nope. And I, and I will tell you that I feel propelled into other movies of this. Like, I can watch Air Force One. I can watch Die Hard. I can watch Under Siege. Like, this movie feels of an era where we were just trying to do ripoffs. And there are cool things about it. The concept is cool. The actors, I like. Um... I just don't think it's all that. I don't I don't think even stylistically it's that great. And you know like I I think it's like the action isn't I was expecting the action to be a little bit more Michael Bay-esque. Um and I I I was a little disappointed with the action. I mean it's cool but it's it, yeah, I just didn't I didn't love it. I didn't love I I there wasn't like enough in it that I was like, yes, all of this, you know. Um but I think that Yon DeBont actually ca- has created a legacy of odd films. You know, it's like so like Twisters, anyone talking about Twisters? Anyone talking about Speed, you know? I, you know, I don't I don't know. I don't I don't I, to me I feel like they are of they're movies of the moment, but they're not movies that are iconic. Then what do you think made it so iconic to people? Uh, because it's of the moment. I think that they, I think two things can be true. Like I think you can I think you can have a movie that captures a moment and then just disappears. Like it it's totally um you know it's like oh my god I never saw anything like this. And then you know maybe it's the I remember seeing it in the theater and feeling the same way. And then I remember actually watching it much later and going like Oh, right. Okay. It's fine. It's, I think it actually feels slower than other movies. I mean, it's, it's pretty briskly paced, but, um, the acting on Keanu's side, he does, I mean, this is kind of Keanu at his worst, honestly. Like, I mean, it's, and even Sandra Bullock's lines are so kind of crazy. I like both of these actors and I think they've done better performances, but it's like, neither one of them are at their full strength, even though they have a good chemistry together. I think Dennis Hopper's doing a great job. Um, Really? I, I think I think Sandra does better than Dennis Hopper. You think, I think she does Dennis, better? Yeah, I think when Dennis Hopper gets into like maniacal giggling fit, it doesn't quite make sense. Or Sandra actually feels like she's really there, like really I mean, living it. Play that gum clip and tell me what you think. I mean, like it's you know, like, well, she's supposed to sound fake then, so that we know that she's lying. Well, we see her take it out of her mouth. I mean, it's yeah. not that much. Yeah, I guess. I guess there is. She elevates that role. And the reason why she, I think, explodes into the world is because she is great in this and, and relatable. I, I don't know. I, like, But I just don't think this movie holds up. I don't think this movie holds up with anything. There's movies that are better before it and there are movies that are better after it that do the exact same thing. Well, then you sound like Bryant Gumbel uh, really interrogating Sandra Bullock on one of her first TV appearances about why she would make this movie. Oh, wow. Um, let me play devil's advocate. Why would a serious actress want to do such a role? Because it's probably, um, it was probably one of the hardest roles I had to do. Because you have such a short time in which to establish a character. And the, the material was so well written. And it was funny. And it was edgy. And at that time, I was so exhausted. I mean, the, the thought of doing something that was going to be so easy and fun to do um, was very appealing. And, and even though it is an action film, even though the action takes precedent over, you know, the development of somebody's, you know, someone's character, um, 
the short amount of time that you have to sort of establish who you are and what your character is about is is incredibly challenging. You have to get across an emotion within like two seconds and have everyone believe you. So it you don't have the luxury of the words to to um, to help you into the character, and it, it sort of fine tunes you a little bit. I mean, I well, think I came out of it a little more um, trained, actually. You know. By the way, it's a dick question that he asked. Uh, but I will also say, because no one's asking that of male action stars, like, why would you pick this? Um, but I will say with her, yeah, this is like, this is the era of the movie star. If she can carry that movie, there's other people who couldn't carry this movie on both sides. Keanu and her, like I could see, that, like we clearly saw it in the sequel, like we talked about earlier, like Jason Patrick couldn't carry that off. And no offense to Jason Patrick, I think he's a great actor too, but it's like, it's a different thing. They have they have something that's relatable and it's, a, it's, it's the movie star quality I think that people relate to in this. But, you know, when we are talking about the fugitive in this movie, this movie is the more like, ooh, yeah, right, speed. And I was like, ooh, yeah, speed, I want to do speed. And I'm like, you know what, I think the fugitive is actually way better. I think the fugitive is like a better constructed film, better actor, better, you know, not to say that these movies have to be seen in that light, but we did put them up against each other as adult uh, films, you know, um, you know, that we're, we're kind of bringing a different audience to the multiplex. Um, You're doing it. You're going to do it, aren't you? I, I, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to call an audible and say, we got to watch the fugitive because I feel like I feel you know, I obviously want to watch Die Hard, and I feel like that's the real that's the real one that we got to watch. But because it was it was there, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull my lever. Josh, hit my sound effect. Uh, I am going to say, let's watch The Fugitive. Let's double down and watch The Fugitive because I think you will see that you're gonna get everything that you want from a movie like this. That's better and. I don't care about it being dumb. I am the biggest fan of dumb action. Like, I love, like, this is what I, this is my bread and butter. But put Bad Boys against this, but comes out in 95, the better movie. It's a better movie. It's more fun. It's bigger. It's like, it's more visually interesting. I just rewatched it. There's some, like, cheapo moments in it, but it's better. It's better. It's better directed. You know, um, I think, you know, you know, I mean, you could talk about, there's so many movies that are, you know, I would even, like, I love this movie called Breakdown. I don't know if you ever saw that movie Mm-mm. with uh, Kurt Russell, uh, where his like wife is like kidnapped from like a, a gas station. It's great. Um, and like that movie is better too. Like, I just think this movie is an interesting set piece. Like when I say George Foreman grill and speed, they fit together. When I say like die hard, that doesn't fit with George Foreman grill to me. Like Die Hard eclipses George Foreman grill. This feels like to me a movie of 1994. Like, and and I and I and I love movies like nineteen like that are of the year and of the moment. And I think that we will always have those things that feel like we all like leaned in, like Blair Witch Project. We all were like, "Yes, this is it." And then you watch it later, and go, "Oh, yeah, I guess." Like sometimes a collective, like, and I don't think there's anything wrong with those movies. The collective just goes, "That's what we are into. We all love this thing," and and you walk away. You're like, oh, "Okay, sure. I guess that was a moment." Well, what's interesting is like I'm hearing you list off the movies you prefer Mm -hmm. and a lot of them I haven't seen, but like comparing this to Die Hard, I do think Die Hard is by far the superior movie. I mean, Die Hard is just a fantastic movie. And I'm realizing that what I like about Speed has almost nothing to do with the category that you're putting it in. And maybe it's just because I'm in a weird ass mood, but like I'm like thinking, oh, I like Speed because it doesn't feel like a high fiving movie to me. 
because it feels like a really sad existentialist tragedy where buses are smashing into signs that say end and stop over and over again. And I like it because I'm thinking about it in these terms that are, I don't even know if they're what the movie is supposed to be thought of, but they're here and they're available for me to think about it in these terms. And because of that, I actually really enjoyed chewing on speed this week. And I will say this, I love you for loving it that way. Like, and, and I don't, and I think that that has made it an, an interesting conversation. Like what is the, you know, the free spirit versus the, you know, the logical versus the emotional, the idea that we are all like living our lives in these tubes or buildings. Like, you know, we all are like what, you know, we all live our lives and we take it safety for granted, right? Like, well, an elevator is going to be fine and I'm going to work in my, you know, and then it's like when yeah. you have movies and like the, the tower. And just a normal commute. And this Titanic, is Titanic. Like, um, we're going on a ship, you know, that's real. But it's like, we, yeah, we just... Nothing bad is going to happen to us. And these movies are like, what if, what if there was a bomb? What if the Holland Tunnel, remember that movie Daylight, another like Stallone movie? Like I think Cliffhanger falls into this category. Like it's like, oh yeah, that was really fun. There's video games made of it. It was really fun. And, um, and I think it's a time capsule, but like if you were to say like, let's put this on the list, I'd be like, well, put John Wick on the list. There's something so much more interesting about John Wick as a human being and, and the world building and the action. Um, you know, I think like, from the college paper point of view that you are attacking it with, I love it. I would give you an A plus because I'm like, wow, you took something that I think is dopey and silly and you've made it way more interesting to make a conversation piece about it. I mean, I but think I a lot of it, it is just like, a green knight is on my mind, you know, right. which I can't wait for you to see green knight. I think I you'll just wait. absolutely love it. Um, and you know, green knight is a movie that I've seen twice in the week that it came out. It just really knocked me for a loop. It's by David Lowry and I have not, really cared about pretty much anything he's ever made. I've been like, you're fine. Like, I see why people like you. It's never hit me that hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been only been able to like appreciate his movies, like a really intellectual distance, but Green Knight, amazing. I mean, it's the story of like, you know, Gawain. And it's kind of a setup that weirdly reminds me of Speed. And this must be what's happening in my subconscious right now, yeah. where like he is told at the beginning of the film, this Green Knight comes in to his Christmas banquet and is like, you know, you can cut off my head if I can cut off your head in a year. That's how the book version goes. And in the movie version, he's like, you can cut me anywhere. And he chooses to cut him in the head. Uh, And then he has a year to know that he's going to go on this giant quest that will end in his death. And the movie is about, you know, like going on this quest, knowing that it will end in your death and not being a heroic person about it, being like, why am I doing this? This is stupid. Going forward and being like, riddled in your own fear. And it's not one of those movies that builds towards like, and now I am a hero. Like, it's just like, this sucks. This sucks. Why am I doing this? What are the societal pressures that are like shaping what a hero is? You know, and the idea that this is a movie about like one of our foundational texts about the heroic ode, you know, the code of chivalry, which is what Gawain is supposed to do. And if you watch that movie and, and like compare it against the original poem, like so much stuff has changed to kind of amplify this point that I think Lowry is really like getting towards. Like if we accept this story of like, yeah, you get your head, you cut off somebody's head, you go get your head cut off as like our idea of what makes somebody brave or courageous instead of questioning why any of this is happening in the first place and why you even cut off the guy's head. Why do you even mm-hmm. do that? Like it kind of sets up, I think the next 900 years of heroic storytelling, which we're still living in, you know? Like you're just, you're supposed to go and you're supposed to do the tough guy thing. And so I think because I've been thinking about this movie nonstop, you know, watching speed in the middle of that, I'm like, 
yeah, it's like Keanu doesn't have to get on this bus. He never had to get on the bus. It wasn't even about him supposed to getting on the bus. It was just like, can you stop the bus? Can you save the bus? And he keeps choosing over and over again to get on the bus. And then there's all of his civilians who are just stuck on the bus, you know, and they didn't even have a say in the matter. And they're facing what they are worried is going to be their own certain death. And some of them are really freaking out about it, like really like actively and doing things that might even be considered selfish, like Beth Grant trying to get off the bus, even if it might kill everybody else and then winding up dying. And like that he, that John Yabant keeps taking moments to look at these characters and, you know, and see how they're doing with what is becoming like a death race that they had nothing to do with. I mean, when they go on the bus jump, I know I'm like monologuing. I'll stop it. No, I love it. Please. They go, they go on the bus jump. You know, and they like leap over this like 50 foot chasm, which of course could never happen in real life. It doesn't even well, look like no it's jump. happening. There's no jump. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't even look like it's happening in real life. Like the lower wheel is too low already. Like right but when the bus But by the leaves. way, that bus jump was real and injured uh, bus drivers who perform that jump greatly and very seriously. Uh, like yeah, that jump. They bit their tongue in half. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, the first jump, no one got injured. And Jan was like, we got to do it again because it looked too perfect. And that's when people got injured. So anyway. Yeah. And then they did like smaller, but still actual jumps that then they used and like had, were videotaping all of the passengers on, you yeah. know, to be like, to get their real reactions of what is it like to be on a jumping bus, even if it's more like 10 feet and not 50. But listen to the music in the bus jump scene, because like, this is, you know, one of the pivotal points in the film, like. Uh, Yost has said, you know, like if you see the bus jump and you're like, well, that's ridiculous. That won't happen. He's like, that's when I know that this movie is completely lost to you and you don't care. But he's like, if you watch that bus jump and you're like, well, that was awesome. Then you're like on board for the rest of whatever speed we'll have to offer. But what I think is special is like when you listen to the music in the background, yeah, a lot of people on the bus are celebrating that they made the jump, but the movie leaves space for people to also not be happy and to just be like, why are we even here in the first place? This is terrible. You listen to the horns and you can picture, you know, um, you can picture Alan Ruck's face because he's one of the guys who cannot celebrate because all of this is just too much. And I, I like that. I really like that. Let's listen, let's listen to the music. Anyway, I'm just saying it's stuff like that that keeps me from thinking of this as a high five movie. And it feels like a deeper movie to me. But this could also be because I have been doing nothing but obsessing about The Green Knight. Please go see The Green Knight. It's amazing. I, I mean, I will. As soon as I feel comfortable going to a theater, I will do that. I, You know, I want to say a couple things to your point. I think Lifeboat is a great movie, a Hitchcock movie, Lifeboat. You know, obviously people on this Lifeboat and you see these moments. Um, this movie has elements of Lifeboat, absolutely. Like, you you get to know these characters. And by the way, um, you know, I was there too as a podcast that Matt Gorley uh, hosts um, or hosted on this network. And it's an amazing uh, podcast where they bring on character actors. And they do a two-part uh, episode about Speed where they interview all the actors uh, who are on the bus. And it is a Rashomon 
style experience that is just unbelievable as everyone tells their own recollections of what they remember, how it was done. Uh, and it's truly, uh, a truly a great listen and you should listen to it. And I listened to it and I loved it. Um, and I guess I, what I want to say is I'm not hating on this movie. I don't think that this movie deserves to be, you know, listed as one of the greatest films. I know Quentin Tarantino, who was offered to direct it and turned it down, you know, puts it on his list of like the 25 best movies since 1992. You know, I, I, I would, you know, maybe I don't know when that list was made, but I would disagree with that. I, I would also say that, you know, this movie is, I, I get, I get why it's interesting. Like, you know, Dennis Hopper isn't like a mustache sneering villain. You you see an emotional connection to him. I think that, you know, that's something that we have seen now time and time again and better and better and better. So it is hard to sometimes go backwards when you see people copy something that was set up and then they do a better job of it. So I'm, I'm having a hard time rewatching it with that, with those eyes, you know, um, you know, uh, just to mention Die Hard yet again, or even uh, Xander Berkeley's character in Air Force One, those two villains are just like straight up evil. They have bad, they have bad plans. They, like, yes, they have their own reason for doing things, but they're more Bond villainy than they are. Uh, there's a reason like, you know, so I think that the, the interesting thing that, you know, is added to this movie is this idea that the villain also could be sympathetic. And that's kind of cool. Like, I, I do like that. Um, I get that. This, you know, this movie also is uh, is a film that I think is very much determined by the actors. I like these actors. I would argue that, you know, OJ, the OJ chase was a week after this film was released. And I think that in that moment, you know, I think that this movie has a lot of similarities to the OJ chase. I think in a zeitgeist way, could that have worked hand in hand and even made this elevated this movie even more? Yes and no. I I don't want to like go out on a limb and say that's definitely the reason of it. I think it's really just because of the two stars in this movie. And you but even no, but I think that is a great thing to mention. I think that's a super great thing to mention because I mean, so much about this movie is presaging it by like a week, which is crazy. Like the idea of news helicopters watching from above and how that interplays into everything happening that like the news cap cameras on top are making it harder for Keanu to like you know, do what he, what he thinks he needs to do on the bus without yeah. Hopper seeing is what he thinks at the beginning. The idea of people just sort of like watching it with this distance on online. The, the, I mean, I don't exactly know why it is completely in Hopper's psyche that he's surrounded by TVs, but I feel like the movie is like trying to make a point about TV and televised news, although he's also watching like football and he's barely paying attention to his own chase. I don't understand that choice at all, but it's there. Yeah. That he's kind of just like having fun watching it as though it's one other thing. There's actually a really good documentary you might like that just came out called Whirly Bird. It's about this then husband and wife who were helicopter reporters. They like they got their own helicopter so that oh, wow. they could, you know, ride above a lesson. It's basically like real life Nightcrawler. I was going to say it's like, yeah, Nightcrawler in the sky. Yeah, like on um, their dates, like they would go to, you know, look at crime scenes when they're, when she was like a college kid, the wife was a college kid. And then they get married in the, um, the, by a helicopter and then start flying over LA and then become like one of the major voices of LA. Like it's this couple that um, recorded the um, beating of Reginald Denny during the LA oh, wow. riots, you know? And I think all of, I think this moment in time is all creating one of our really powerful and lasting images of LA. Like when I think of LA in cinema, I think of it in kind of like a speed 
helicoptery, like orange freeway existence that feels so much of this time. It feels like it captured the all eyes on LA, looking at LA like it's a tinderbox, also talking about falling down again, you know? It's weird that this moment I feel like really is one of the, like, if you're going to go through and look at like the, the tree rings of Los Angeles history, that feels like a really major one. But anyway, this documentary, Whirly Bird, it's about this couple and about how it, you know, it's the pressure to get the news in LA at this time is one of the things that breaks them up. They're like long divorced now. And their child, Katie Turr is a news anchor. You see her when she's like a kid, they put microphones in her hand and they're like, talk right. like a lady on the news. Oh, wow. Yeah. Really interesting. So I, I think this film is trying to chew a little bit on the idea of like media and news. It doesn't really go that far with it. Yeah. But- I mean, there's a lot here. I think there's a lot to like, I enjoyed my watching of it. I just think I was, I was really looking forward to, you know, I this is coming off of I just watched Bad Boys one uh, just a few weeks ago, and I was like, oh wow, this movie is like really fun and good. So I'm not like cold hearted, and I was excited to watch this movie. I think I was just kind of like, oh, it's so kind of run of the mill, and I get why it all works, and it is, and it should work, and and this does come out at a time like when the Flintstones is out in the movie theater, so it's like it's it's exciting in the sense of. Oh, thank God. Like something I can go watch that doesn't feel like a kid film, you know? Um, And, and uh, yeah, so I'm not like, I think my issue with this movie is it feels to me more like McDonald's than the other films that we have done. It's good. Fine. Fine. Like that. Great. But, you know, and, and it's a movie saved by performances. Whereas I think Tommy Lee Jones and, and, uh, and Will Smith are great performances that are additive to a great script and a great concept. And this, I feel like it's the actors who are elevating a pretty mediocre retelling. I mean, they went back to John Mentiranen. They're like, can you make this? And he's like, no, it's the same fucking movie. And like what you said earlier, like when Keanu Reeves was like offered this movie, he's like it's just Die Hard. And I guess what they've done to simplify the Die Hard edges of it is like, I don't see why this movie feels so desperately different than Die Hard. It ends almost the exact same way. Um, You know, uh, I do think like Keanu's quip at the end kind of does make it feel like nothing really happened. Yeah. And like, yeah, yeah. he's back to his old self. And it's like, and a lot of his, I I think it's fascinating that like one of the things you hear most often in this movie is just people saying what to each other, like what, Mm -hmm. as in like, what did you say? Your, your non sequitur makes no sense to me or what, why is this happening? The word what, I want to, like, if you played a drinking game with the number of times people say what, I think that this was a movie that would definitely get you trashed. Like, even on that fight, like, Hopper is saying, you know, I'm the man with the plan and I'm smarter than you. And Keanu says, yeah, but I'm taller. Like, yeah. I've, I've just, I've been thinking about that. Like, what? No, it's like dumb. Like, there's dumb, dumb shit in here. But it's also like a time where it's like, you know, look at this movie, you know, it, it, I also think this is the reason why Pulp Fiction explodes in a major way. And then you start seeing Pulp Fiction clones after this, like because Pulp Fiction comes out this year and then I make everyone's like, oh, now we're not doing this kind of action. We're doing like dialogue, heavy, cool, interestingly shot things like that are, uh, you know, and by the way, 
did I do a whole NTSF web series based on speed? Absolutely. You know, and, and I, and I understood why, why, why it's funny about this and, and how, how hard it is to shoot on a bus and especially a moving bus and how creative you can be and how you can't be like, there's certain parameters you had to work. And I think that the elevator sequence in the beginning and the subway sequences at the end are, are actually more interesting than the, the middle bus sequence. I think there's only so much you can do, uh, you know, lighting wise. And, you know, there's only so many angles you can hit, uh, cause it doesn't look incredibly CGI either. Like they're driving around. So yeah. I, you know, I, I will give it up to Jan de Bont and saying, I think he's a brilliant cinematographer, but I think this movie is a challenge because there's only so many places that you can shoot without being windows. You can see yeah. the giant lighting differences in the, in the bookends versus, I mean, it's so much more stylistic in the bookends than it is in the center. Yeah. They had like what? 12 buses, I think all sorts yeah. of different buses. Buses with cameras in the front on the windshield, buses with, I don't know, a bazillion different kinds. They had like, well, I mean, they did, I think, take an interesting note from, of all people, Altman. Because like when you um, listen to the people who are on the bus, like we think are so interesting, like the the character actors who are on the bus, they said there are so many cameras in the bus that you never knew when you were off camera, just like Altman style, so that it kept everybody always on. Which was important when you're, you know, shooting on this bus for like two and a half months, 11 hours a day in the same costume, surrounded by the same people that just the presence of never knowing when your little moment was going to be on camera, like really kept everybody on their game. And yeah, like that podcast, you know, that I was there too. It's interesting because like the one common thing that people keep saying is they read an earlier draft of this movie. And in the earlier draft of this movie pretty much everybody on the bus had a special skill that would wind up coming into play in somehow. Like it was more of an ensemble film about how the people on the bus were able to together, you know, get off the bus that like the kid with the shaggy hair, his backstory was that he was supposed to be like a videographer or he was like a film student. So he had the camera equipment that they then later used to tape that footage and then like loop it back and forth. The footage that they used to distract Dennis Hopper with that like that was this kid's whole job and that other people had like entire backstories that the actor Carlos Carrasco, um, he had a scene where you like saw him at home with his wife before he got on the bus and that there's kind of this, I think, really painful choice that they made in casting this film where they're like, we want a bus that looks like real Los Angeles. And they cast like real looking Los Angelinos, you know, like a really diverse crowd, diverse in age, diverse in in ethnicity. And they promised everybody that they would get a speaking part. And most of them actually had more of a character than they would usually get. You know, Carlos was like, I at this time was only getting asked to play like gang members. So to play a guy who was sort of a hero was amazing. And then a week into rehearsals, they're all given new scripts where basically all of their heroic action was cut out and it was given to, you know, Keanu. Well, that, I mean, that to me feels like the difference between what like Lifeboat would have been versus like, to me, this movie is way more interesting if the the bus is full of uh, John McClane's, right? Like it's a, it's a bus that the, the city has done and they have to take over, right? They, they all have to like work together and there's not a lead guy. That's an more interesting movie to me. I mean, I'm kind of of two minds, like. I like, in a way, the ordinariness of this happening to ordinary people who aren't heroes. I think there's something that would be too cute or too pat if right. if there was just these amazing coincidences. I just happen to have a camera on me. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I think the idea that they were going back and forth with the character um, that Sandra Bullock plays, like in one of the early drafts, she was 
a paramedic because they're like, that'll give her an excuse for being able to drive really well. And then in another one, she was a driving instructor. And they're like, that'll be another like kind of funny joke. Like what a weird coincidence. And then they cut out all the coincidences and they're just like, she's a normal girl. And I am drawn to the normal girl situation more than like, I have a magical set of skills. I think there's something in taking away the coincidences that make this feel more human to me. It's, okay. a, it's an interesting move. I mean, I feel heartbroken for actors who didn't get the role that they really thought they were getting, you know, especially in the 90s when we were really in a dearth of having good roles for people. But I do think it would have made a worse movie. What do you think about the movie if Ellen DeGeneres was the driver and Jeff Daniels was the uh, was the Keanu? That was at one point part of the film. It was originally written with that intention. Well, then I think it would be whole on the movie that you're describing. The like good enough for its day disposable movie. Well, here's again what I will say. I love Tony Scott. I think Tony Scott movies are the most fun. And I think there are movies that Tony Scott does that are uh, probably seminal, like Top Gun. And then I think there are movies that Tony Scott does that are just like, whoa, that was super fun. Denzel Washington was trying to stop a train with no brakes. I'm never going to watch Unstoppable again, but I loved every moment in the theater. And that's what this feels like to me. Like, I will watch Denzel Washington in any of those mediocre Tony Scott movies because Tony Scott's interesting enough as a filmmaker and Denzel Washington carries it as an actor. I'm like, I'm all in. Like, let's go. Uh, and that's what this movie did. It's like, it's competent, but not memorable. I think the thing that why this movie lives in our consciousness is because the concept is more interesting. And you'd say, well, Paul, then why doesn't Unstoppable live in our memory? Well, because a uh, speed. Because I think speed already did it. Like, I, you know, I, I think it's like, okay, well, now it's... Once you do can't stop a blank, you can't have another can't stop a blank. I mean, that's interesting too. You gotta find the next, you know, the next unique thing. Well, then why don't I read a negative review? And it will All this right, time make you feel very cathartic and seen. All right, great. Okay, so this negative review comes from Hal Henson of the Washington Post. If a movie titled Speed doesn't rush into your veins, spiking your eyeballs and spinning them back into your head, then what good is it? Summer action movies are expected to be derivative and formulaic. They're also expected to be brainless, substanceless, and noisy. And Speed hits its marks on all three of those counts, too. At one point, Dennis Hopper tells Keanu, do not attempt to grow a brain. And the filmmakers follow his advice to the letter. Yet, by action-adventure standards, speed is leaden and strangely pokey. Even at what are supposed to be the film's most exhilarating moments, like the big scene in which the bus has to leap over a section of missing highway, the images don't seem to have any vitality or build any momentum, and the editing ryth rhythms don't seem to have any snap either. Rather than lean and efficient, it just seems empty. And between thrills, the picture falls into endless seeming long ears on the bus, with the camera staring blankly at the passengers, who sit there defined only by their ethnicity, while the white dude figures out what to do next. Uh, the reviewer says that Keanu is so earnest that he has no electricity, no life. He says that Hopper is literally just phoning it in, and in his overalls he looks about as threatening as the Maytag repairman. But the reviewer does like Sandra Bullock, who he calls a slightly softer version of the Linda Hamilton Sigourney Weaver heroines, capable, independent, but still irresistibly vulnerable. You know, um, I think... <sighs> I'm mixing that review, but I, you know, I think this is the definition of a summer blockbuster, in my opinion. There are seminal summer blockbusters, and there are fun summer blockbusters, and there are, and that is what I love about 
this series is that we are able to have a mix of both. Not every summer blockbuster needs to be one of the best movies ever made. Some summer blockbusters are supposed to be like a break from the heat and jump into that air conditioning and have fun for two hours and then walk out. Like old. Like, I guess. And so... I'm all in. I'm all in on movies like this. I don't mean to uh, to shit on it so much, but I will say um, it's fun. It's dumb. There's better fun and dumb films out there um, if you are looking for a fun and dumb film. Now, I did. I, I will say this. Um, you know, Amy, uh, you know, our producer, uh, Josh, did write uh, a thesis on the score of Speed, and I wanted him to come in and, and defend... Uh, my original point that uh, that was a, a, a bad score. Um, so maybe I'm being too sour on it. So Josh, welcome. Hi. Hi. I so did, you... in fact, I took a, I took a class, uh, UC Santa Cruz, uh, about 2004 on on film scoring, and I did write my thesis on the score for the movie Speed by Mark Mancina. Did you pick it? <laughs> yeah, I picked it. I mean, this is Speed is a sentimental favorite for me. I love okay. Speed. All right, so I'm going to be in the minority here uh, on this episode, I feel like, already. I already feel the comments are going to come at me. So Mark Mancini, talk to me about what, is, what, what, what films is he scoring? I don't, I'm not familiar with this. I mean, this. he's kind of like, he's kind of, I get, you could call him a, a little bit like budget Hans Zimmer. He's kind okay. of like a Hans Zimmer acolyte. I think he actually did like, earlier this year, he did uh, like contributed to the score for The Lion King. Uh, okay. Bef- like just before doing Speed. So he's a versatile guy. What, like, I want to hear your pitch for why it's a great uh, score. All right. I mean, I think it's 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 very much a blunt instrument of a score. I'll say that. I mean, okay. it's very much. It's just. It's it's it's. I think very influential, and maybe part of why it's hard to hear now is I think so many action scores since then have really taken after it. Of like how how rhythmic it is, how percussive it is, how much they really like will take a the central motif that you identified of the dun 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 dun, dun and really. Yeah. I mean, yeah, drive it into the ground, but it's. Extreme. It's not. It's not a score you'd want to listen to on its own, but I think it's extremely right. effective. I think so much of the juice of this movie comes from the music. I think so much of like keeping the intensity going for two straight hours is is really driven by that as much as it is by the vis- his cinematography and a lot of the rest. Okay. Well, what about? And I want to actually play this clip here. What about the musical psych out at the end? Like the train has come up onto Hollywood. Keanu and Sandra are kissing. The music is weirdly to me sentimental until it suddenly gets interrupted by a Billy Idol song. I, I don't know. I don't have much comment on the Billy Idol song. I don't know. I don't. I don't know if I can defend that. Uh, Fine, but do you think the sentimental music is a joke? Because it's so sentimental. Oh no, I don't think it's a joke at all. I think I, th- I think it's uh, definitely music that takes itself very seriously. But it kind you kind of like. I think that's that's kind of necessary for selling the sillier parts of the movie is having a score that is that serious. Recently, we've covered some other like really heavy hitters of like the action scores. I think like James Horner's score for Aliens is is also one of these incredibly influential scores. Uh, but I think this this did a lot, honestly, in, in terms of like kind of setting the template for what what a lot of action movies would sound like for the next ten or fifteen years. Yeah, I you know I think when you said budget Hans Zimmer, I really related to that because 
it feels parallel to a great score. And I feel like there's some things that are missing from it, but I also believe that it's an earworm score. Like it's like the pop music equivalent of a great score. And like, I will listen in my car to uh, the latest Mission Impossible, Mission Impossible Fallout score. I think it's a beautiful score. It's really well done. Uh, And it has that kind of pacing to it too, but there's no, you're right, there's no fluctuation in it. But at the same time, this movie also is just like, is kind of riding along like that. So I, I see the, the benefits. The Fallout score of, is really special. That's an incredible yeah. piece of music. It really is, yeah. But you think Paul's wrong, though, about everything. I do, I've, I, I, Die Hard is better than Speed, but Speed is a lot of fun. Air and Force Speed, One? I'm, is Air Force One better than Speed? Uh, I don't know. Air Force One doesn't have a bus that can't go under 50 miles per hour. Does have the I, I mean, it's, just, it's, that, it's that high concept. It's just like, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to deny. All right. Well, now we have to bring in, we have to bring in Devin too, because I feel like Devin's going to have a, a, a point of view on this. And Devin, our, our audio engineer, also, uh, you know, you've heard these two debate their films. And I, because very rarely am I on this side of not liking the popular film. So I, I will take my lumps here on the show uh, from both of you. Like, all right, so Devin, where are you falling speed? Um, I, now, look, I haven't seen speed in a very long time. Yeah. Um, but I re I mean, I, I can remember uh, the second you started talking about it, I can remember where I watched speed. Right. It was it was not in the theater. I was a little. Well, I mean, my dad had taken me to see a lot of R rated stuff, but it or was this PG-13? This one? Is it not even R or is I it think that? it is R. OK, I'm pretty sure. it is. So yeah. but w- regardless, I watched it at home uh, on VHS, watched it in the kitchen at my house. I remember just I, every single second of it thrilled me. And that feeling is still within me. But I think Paul's not wrong that it's one of those movies that maybe was of its moment and doesn't last as long as something like a Die Hard, which has extra layers of, I mean, humor and vulnerability in it that, I mean, I don't recall from Speed, but I enjoyed hearing Amy talk about how she did get some of that stuff out of a recent rewatch. It makes me think maybe there's some value in revisiting this movie, seeing what I think about it. Um, The score, I don't remember at all, but I'm enjoying you guys fighting about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, and I will say that all this stuff is like, and I think there's a difference between the show is about finding the best movies. And I think what I love about this is, is Speed a blockbuster? Absolutely. Is it a great movie? Sure. Like a great summer blockbuster? Absolutely. But is it a great movie? I think there are better versions. I think there's better Keanu. And I think there are better versions of this. That's where I, that's basically what I'm, where I'm putting my criteria on. And it like, and after these last three weeks of back to the future, Jurassic park and, uh, and men in black, it, it, it falls so much lower for me on this list. I'm like, Oh, I, I was like, so excited, which is why I pulled my audible. Now I may be wrong with my audible, but I do think that we're going to find that that the fugitive is going to hold up better, and we're gonna we're gonna bring it back to life. The fugitive is a movie I've revisited a lot more often because it, there's a lot to come back to in it, and the performances are so good in that movie. All right, uh, and and also I will just say, in a Yon Debont world, I would take Twister over Speed, no problem, no Ooh, questions. That's asked. interesting. Ooh, I like that. Oh, yeah. There's an argument to be made there for sure. Yeah. All right, I'm open to that one too. All right. Well, this has been a great debate. You know where I fall about sending this up to space. But Amy, are you sending this to space? Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Oh, yeah. I'm just in a mood, man. I'm in a mood. I'm in the mood for speed, not the need for speed, but the mood for speed. I love it. And uh, and so we are calling my audible, which means that next week we are taking a, uh, a break from where we've been voting, uh, probably from our comedy uh, that we're going to go to and go back into the adult film uh you know, summer blockbuster, which I do think is a very interesting type of uh, summer movie. 
And I and by the way, uh, I also remember I was seeing this movie, and I remember being excited by it too. I think that like it came out at a point where I could go see an R movie, and you know, and it was like it felt like no one was going to question that I, that I could get into it, you know. And I thought that was like you know, I remember it being cool to see that kind of stuff. But uh, the Fugitive. Uh, based on IP, very hard to get away from IP in this series, but based on IP, came out in 1993, a year before Speed, uh, and uh, let's take a listen to the trailer. All right, ladies and gentlemen, listen up. We have a fugitive that's been on the run for 90 minutes. Average foot speed over uneven ground, barring injury, is four miles an hour. That will give you a radius of six miles. What I want out of each and every one of you is a hard target search of every gas station, residence, warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in this area. Checkpoints will go up at 15 miles. Fugitive's name is Dr. Richard Kimball. Go get him. Uh, Fugitive, also a movie with a sequel that often isn't discussed as being a great sequel in the sense of they just said, all right, let's just follow the team. Like the 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 hunt the fugitive hunters. And I thought that was like a cool idea. Like they became the heroes. In the second film, that's U.S. Marshals. I believe it was uh, 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 Wesley Snipes. Uh, so, like, it's Wesley Snipes and Tommy Lee Jones. I don't know if it's great, but I love that variation of it. It wasn't like, oh, Harrison Ford's accused of something again, you know, like, <laughs> like you know, uh, you know. But that's a great way of like reinventing it. Like, I, I think if you're going to do it's the a... Knives Out model, yeah. But by the way, I think that that's like, yeah, you're absolutely right. And who would have thought that? And that's a smart. That's a smart thing because to me. Why put Sandra Bullock back behind a fucking boat to do with two other people? Do him, give him another situation. Figure out something else. Like you know, it's it, it dilutes Have the original. Dennis Hopper's uh, headless body reanimate itself out of just sheer revenge. Yeah, and I guess you know, it's to me, it's like all you know. We just came off of the NBA uh, free agency, and all these players uh. are like, well, I'll pay for less money uh, if I have a chance to compete. But when it comes down to it. When you see that dollar sign, when you see DeMar DeRozan signing a contract for three years for $85 million, you go like, well, you know what? I'm going to I'm gonna go with the money. And I think that that's why you get these sequels and you get these actors coming back. Because at a certain point, you're like, I'm a fool not to take it. Like, yes, artistic create, you know, you know artistic integrity be damned. I'm going to do a Friends reunion. And by the way, I, I actually think the Friends reunion was like a, a fine thing. Um, but, you know, I think that there's a part of it where it's just commerce. At a certain point, you're like, fuck it, you want it? Yeah. Take it. Sandra said go. she'd do the Speed 2 sequel if they gave her the money to do Hope Floats. And they did, so she did. And nobody liked Hope Floats, and it was a lose-lose. But she tried. Well, there we are. Amy, I look forward to discussing uh, Angry Harrison Ford with you, because I think we do need it in our summer movie series. We have gone too long uh, without it. That's all for today's show. And remember to rate and review this show. 
Tell people about it. It really, truly helps. A big thank you to our super producer, Josh Richmond, and our audio engineer extraordinaire, Devin Bryant. Thank you guys for making this show sound so amazingly great. And our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds, for making sure that this show runs on time and that we have our research at hand. I also want to give a shout out to Kim Troxell for her amazing art. And if you want to keep this conversation going, please do so at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. There's an unspooled section there where we have debates and votes and polls. We also have our Facebook group, the Unspooled Podcast Facebook group, that is still an amazing place to be. I want to give a huge uh, shout out to everyone in all those forums for keeping these conversations going. And I also want to let you know that you can head on over to tpublic.com to check out our Unspooled merch. That's right. Go to tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled to see what we got in the store. And that's all. We'll see you next week on Unspooled. Unspooled. 